Good morning, everybody. It is so, so good to be with you. I, this, this series is one that I am so excited about. I, I acknowledge that you probably don't share my enthusiasm, but I pray that as the series progresses, you will get swept away. Apex, and Apex is the summit of a mountain. We're going to talk about life at its best. The subtitle is The Exhilaration of Knowing God. You know, we're going to study a mountain together, and I, I had the privilege when I was a young man of climbing a mountain. My dad thought it would be a good experience for he and his sons. I have three, I'm two uh, brothers, I'm one of three boys, and my dad said, let's go climb one of the 14ers in Colorado. There are 53 peaks over 14,000 feet, and one of them is Mount Antero. This is Mount Antero, and when I was a wee lad... I climbed this baby, and let me tell you, it was more work than I signed up for. Holy cow. When you get going and feel the air getting thinner, and you're sucking for oxygen, and the boulders get bigger, but I stood at that peak, and the exhilaration of standing on the top of the world, man, I hope you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you have. But it's unbelievable. You feel like you're flying as you look 360 around at the glory of God on display through his creation everywhere you could look. It was awesome. My son uh, has desired me to bless him in the same way my dad blessed us. Jake loves mountains way more than I do. He's been reading about them, studying about them. We've gone to Colorado a couple times and he's never had the chance to climb to the summit of a mountain. And finally, Jake had that opportunity. Here's a picture of my son standing at the summit, hands high in exhilaration. Oh, the glory of this moment. You know, it dawns on me, I may have uh, implied or mistakenly implied that this is Colorado. This is not a Colorado peak. This is more local mountain. Uh, (laughs) Actually, can we expand the picture over? Yeah, this is... uh, this mountain is, is actually at the corner of 59 and 75th at the Hobby Lobby there. Uh, this picture was taken on Friday. Uh, Friday was Jake's birthday, and we arrived to eat at Culver's. He could pick any restaurant in the world for his birthday, and he wanted a corn dog from Culver's. Steak on a stick, baby. And so we were there, and he saw that the snowplows had made this. And he said, Dad, that's Mount Everest number two. And I said, you're right, Jake. And he said, can I, for my eighth birthday, climb to the top of Mount Everest? And I'm sure it's against the law or some rule, but I said, sure, go for it, buddy. And he climbed up to the top. What a glory day. Culver's, mountaintop. Then we went bowling. Jake loves bowling. Any game where the object is to knock things down. Jake's all over it, you know, and they ended up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> woo Knock them down. So this is a, a Naperville mountain. You know, we're not mountain people, are we? No, I mean, if, if, if we get excited about a pile of snow, you know it's pretty pathetic. You know, we are flatlanders. And yet, in this particular series, we're going to become mountain people. For 11 weeks, this is a long series. I hope you can stay focused that long. My my prayer is that you'll get more enthused and you won't want it to end. 
But this 11 weeks is all studying one mountain. We're going to obsess about a mountain. And the mountain is the most important mountain in the whole world, at least from my perspective. And that is Mount Sinai. Here's a picture of, of Mount Sinai. Now you say, you mean the Mount Sinai from the Old Testament? That's the actual one? Maybe. This is what I would refer to as the traditional Mount Sinai. It dates back 1,700 years ago, around 300 AD, a few Christians came to the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt, and they asked the local folks there, where's the mountain of Moses? And the people with great confidence led them to this mountain and said, here, this is the mountain of Moses. And whether the tradition was preserved and that's the accurate mountain, we can't be certain. It may be. I will tell you this. It looks like this. There's lots of mountains in the Sinai Peninsula, and they all look the same. And so they're, they're rocky and they're barren. And so when you imagine Moses on Mount Sinai, that's what you need to think of. And so what we find is that in the Old Testament, the, uh, the Israelites camped for 11 months at the base of Mount Sinai. And that's a long time. Moses says, we got to live here for a time. And God met the people of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai many, many miraculous ways. We're going to study all of them. We're going to look at everything that happened in Mount Sinai. You ready? Second half of the book of Exodus is where it occurred. And I'm not sure how well acquainted you are with that area, but that's where we're going. And we're going to study it together. Shall we start? So second half of the book of Exodus, actually Exodus 15. I want to read a short verse that will change your life, or at least it has the power to change your life. If you have the eyes to see. Ready? Exodus 15, verse 22. Here's a call. Here it goes. Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the sure desert. <laughs> you're like, I don't have eyes to see. I don't see what you're so excited about, Jeff. What do you mean it's going to change my life? Looks about one of the most boring verses imaginable to preach on. And so what do we learn from it? Moses is leading the people. Remember, God picked Moses to be the deliverer, to lead the people out of their slavery in Egypt and into freedom and into becoming a nation, the nation of Israel. He says that he led them away from the Red Sea. Do you remember the Red Sea? That's the sea that parted. This, that's the event that this is referring to. As the Israelites left Egypt, God miraculously parted the Red Sea. They went through on dry ground, and then when the Egyptian army was chasing them, what happened? The waters collapsed, and the army was drowned, and the Israelites were free. And upon being free, what does God do? God moves them through Moses to the, sure, desert? Maybe a map would help see the significance of this. Let's go to the map. What we find here is that the Israelites are over here in Egypt, that they Passed through the Red Sea. A lot of debate about where is the Red Sea that was parted. Uh, it can also mean the Reed Sea. And most scholars think it's one of these bodies of water. We don't know exactly. The point being is they're headed to Canaan. This is Canaan. There's the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. This is modern-day Israel right here. This is the destination that they were headed towards. And as you can imagine, the Israelites wanted to get there fast. Do you remember how it had been described to them? God said it in these words. The land of Canaan is the land flowing with 
milk and honey, milk and honey. This was an ancient way of saying, this is the good life, oh my, you want to get to Canaan. It's the land of idyllic circumstances where abundance flows. And you know, people who had been in slavery going to the good life in Canaan, they wanted to get there. And I don't blame them. It's very American. We, we want the American dream, right? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Today, people believe the most important thing, I'm not saying you, but many people believe that the most important thing in life is to have it good, is to have the house and the car and the family and to have the job and to have the recreation and the relaxation. If you can somehow get all the circumstances of your life fine-tuned to perfection, then you've got it. You've got the point of life. And yet this verse tells us that though they were headed to the land flowing with milk and honey, Moses did a detour. The desert of Shur is to the south. Moses says, I know where we're headed, but make a turn. We're headed south. And why? He's taking them to Mount Sinai. And folks, they're going to Mount Sinai, and God is absolutely excited. The people are not Imagine the folks, the Israelites, you know, they're like, wait a minute, where are we going? The desert? Are you kidding me? Here I was so enthused about getting to the land flowing with milk and honey, and now all of a sudden you're taking me into this obscure, miserable place? Here's the question. What is worth postponing the land flowing with milk and honey? What could be better than the land flowing with milk and honey? Well, there's something down here that's better. You know what it is? God. Moses says, and I can imagine him explaining to the people of Israel, I know you're stoked about enjoying the blessings of God and the land flowing with milk and honey. I'm excited to get there too, Moses said. But there's something better than great circumstances. I want to take you to Mount Sinai. And I'm sure he had to explain. I met God at Mount Sinai. And I want you to meet him too, Moses said. And Moses probably elaborated on how he met God at this sacred mountain. And I want to help uh, you understand how Moses met God. So let's do some. Let's take our Bibles and let's turn back. We started in Exodus 15, but I'd like to turn back to Exodus 3, verse 1, for just a moment. It says there, this is how Moses first met God at Mount Sinai. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. The priest of Mid- Jethro's a great name, by the way. Can I just say, uh, were any of those kids dedicated Jethro? No? I wanted to name my son Jethro. My wife would have no part of it. <laughs> Moses was married to the daughter of Jethro, he, the priest of Midian, and Moses went deep into the wilderness near Sinai, the mountain of God. So he's a shepherd. He's tending sheep. And he presses into the wilderness further than he's ever gone before. And he comes to this mountain that's going to become known as the mountain of God. And what happens there? Well, look at the next verse, verse 2. Suddenly, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses as a blazing fire in a bush. Remember the burning bush? Did you remember that that's at Mount Sinai where that occurred? 
And so Moses is just stoked. He, he's bored to tears watching sheep all day. And then he sees a fire burning at the base of this mountain in a bush. And it just keeps burning. He was fascinated, so he went over to check it out. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had caught Moses' attention, God called to Moses from the bush, Moses! Moses! Oh, my. you got to imagine what that must have been like. Why, why is the name Moses said twice? Emphasis. God's going to say a lot, but Moses was rocked by those initial two words. Moses, Moses. First of all, he didn't expect the miracle of the burning bush. Second of all, he didn't expect the miracle of God speaking out of a bush. But maybe what shocked him most of all is God saying his name. Can you imagine? Maybe not, and you need to be able to imagine this. Can you imagine God saying your name? Is God interested in you so much that he knows your name? Jeffrey Todd Griffin. But to hear God say my name, that rocked Moses because Moses didn't view God in that way. He viewed God as distant, far away, you know, real, but out there somewhere and attending to important things. And he didn't view God as one who knew him intimately. Later in Exodus 33, verse 12, Moses says, I can't believe you know me by name. And folks, Moses was shocked. It was that day at Mount Sinai that Moses discovered God had personal interest in him. Up until that point, Moses had known a lot about God, but he hadn't known God. How did he know about God? Uh, He had preachers around him. Aaron, his brother, was known to be a good preacher. His father-in-law, Jethro, was a priest of Midian. The Midianites were not part of Israel, but they were descendants of of Abraham's son, Midian. So they were followers of the God of Abraham. So Moses had preachers in his life. He had a a head full of knowledge about God. But he never knew God personally in intimate relationship until that day God came to him at Mount Sinai. And God says, Moses, I know you. And I want to know you better. In fact, Moses, I want us to go on an adventure of great significance. Out of the bush, God said, Moses, I want you to lead the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt. You're the guy working with me in partnership. And Moses was just his head spinning. Can you imagine this? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know me. You want to do life together with me. And then Moses tests this new discovery. He's like, all right, Lord, if, if we're closer than I thought, you know, you know my name, didn't expect that. Moses says, let me just explore how close you want to be, because I have a question for you. Here's what he asks. This is good. Moses asks, uh, in verse 13, Moses said, if I go to the people of Israel and I tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, you know, he says, they won't believe me. They'll ask, oh yeah, what's his name? Then what should I tell them, God? This is fascinating. Moses says, you know, this, this notion of me knowing you and you knowing me and us being close is pretty, pretty unexpected. And so when I come to the Israelites and say, Lord and I are really tight. In fact, he was talking to me the other day, asking me to be your leader. They're going to say, yeah, right, you know God, sure. And they're going to ask this question, prove it. What's his name? And to us, the name, you know, immediately doesn't 
strike a chord as to the best way to discover if someone knows God. And yet if you understand the ancient Egyptian subculture that Moses and the Israelites grew up in, that they were raised in, you understand why they would ask that question. Let me tell you. So in the ancient culture, you would have two names. All Egyptians had two names. Their great name and their small or their little name. Did you know that? And the little name was their nickname. It was the name everybody called them. Everybody knew it, and everybody referred to them by their small name. Their great name was a secret, a huge secret. In fact, the Egyptians obsessed about this. They thought if someone found out their great name, that person would have power over them in some way. And so the Egyptians protected that great name. The only ones who knew were those who were invited to the naming ceremony of a baby. Similar to our baby dedication, they, when a baby was born, would have a baby naming ceremony, but different from our dedication in that only a small group was invited to that ceremony. And when I say a small group, I'm talking like eight people, a few family who could really be trusted, and a few friends who were your closest confidants. And when they came to that naming ceremony, the the father would say, okay, you all know their little name. Everyone knows that. He says, the great name of our child is, and with hushed tone, they would utter that name. And the people who knew it understood under no circumstances would they ever let anyone find that out. So with this context in mind, you you know that when somebody knows your great name, they are your closest friend. And so when Moses says, any chance you'd tell me your great name, God? He's saying, God, I was shocked that you knew my name. Didn't know you were interested in me. Can I push it and ask, what's your name? And to his shock and to his delight, God gave him his name. First time ever in the history of the world, uh, God revealed his name. Let me, let me show you. Uh, this is verse 15. God said... Moses, tell them the Lord. You see in parentheses, I have Yahweh. We sang that in that song, Yahweh. Yahweh, this will be my name forever, and it has always been my name. Uh, You say, well, what's what's with Yahweh? I don't see that. That that parentheses is not in my Bible. When you see the word the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, That's how our English Bible translates the Hebrew word or name Yahweh. Yahweh is the actual Hebrew word there. And you say, Yahweh is a weird name. I don't see it in the Bible. It's 7,000 times in the Bible. In the Old Testament, every time you see the Lord, that's Yahweh, the, the sacred name of God. It means I am. And I could preach a whole sermon on the significance of what it means, but I'm not gonna. I'd like to stick with just the fact that God revealed his name to Moses. That's unbelievable. Moses, no one has ever asked me my name, and I've never told anyone my name. But I'll tell you, my name is Yahweh. You know, there was a scribe in Spain about 700 years ago, before the printing press was invented. A scribe was writing down the Bible, You know, that's the only way you could duplicate it was by hand. And he got to this very passage where God's name was confessed. And that scribe was so inspired by this truth that he 
took a page next to the text and just started drawing the name Yahweh of God. I was so moved by what the scribe did that I have a copy of it and I have it framed. It's difficult to see, so we'll zoom in on it here. Keep this in my office. See the white letters right here? Those are just four Hebrew letters. yod Hey vav Hey, Yahweh is how it's pronounced. And the scribe is just, this is unbelievable. You can tell the scribe in artistic display is expressing his amazement that God tells us his name. He wants us to be intimates with us in that regard. And you may say, Jeff, you're a weird person to frame that and hang that on the wall of your office. And you're right, I am weird. But the reason that I do it is because I let this remind me of this truth. Is God great and majestic? Yes. But he also is the God who made it clear that he speaks our name. When I look at this, I think of God saying, Jeff Griffin, you are my son. And Jeff, my name is Yahweh. And I want to know you and for you to know me. And this picture reminds me of this principle of drawing near to the great, exalted God of the Bible. And I pray that you'd be moved by that. You know, why is Mount Sinai holy ground? Remember, God said it's so holy. He says, when you climb this mountain, barefoot, that's kind of tough, but take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. And one would say, why? What's so special about this particular mountain? And I think the answer is nothing's that special about this particular mountain. The Lord picked one. He's like, I don't know, that one. And God said, People need a visual sometimes, a a concrete thing to help them connect with the spiritual reality. So God said, I'm going to pick a mountain, and I'm going to show myself to Moses there. I'm going to make this mountain the place where Moses comes to know me relationally. And then God says, I'm going to bring all my people, Israel, to that place, and they too will get to know me. And what makes Mount Sinai holy is that it's the place of knowing God. God says the most sacred thing in all of life is not the land flowing with milk and honey, but it's the place of knowing me. And God says, maybe if I pick a mountain and and reveal myself to you there, that'll help you see the value of this relationship we can have. And again, it's not just with Moses. Jesus died to pave the way to Sinai for all of us. Let me show you a verse that God said this out of the bush after Moses hears the name of God. Eventually, God says in verse 15, no, verse 12, God says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. And and I have to clarify something. The Hebrew word you is plural. So he's saying, Moses, when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you all, y'all, if God were from the south, y'all, will return to this place and all of you, all of you will worship me at this mountain. The vision of God for his community is demonstrated in this verse. God says, I'll tell you, do I, God says, do I get excited about a bunch of slaves getting free? Yes. Do I get excited about a bunch of slaves getting free and becoming a nation? Yes. God says, I'll tell you what really excites me when they become a community 
who adore me. God says, the vision of all of my people gathering at this sacred mountain and all of them worshiping, pouring out their love to me, God says, that's what I long for. And folks, I'll just tell you, that's what I long for for the Compass Church as well. Maybe you do also. Do I want us to be a great church? Sure. But true greatness comes when you love God more, so more love him. And I'm praying that something happens in us. We suddenly become demystified by the land flowing with milk and honey. And we're like, eh, take it or leave it. I'll tell you what I want. I want Sinai. I want to see the face of God. I want to know the love of God. I want to experience what it's like to be in friendship with the invisible God. I want us, I long for us to be a people who are consumed with worship and celebration and love for the Almighty. You know, I'll just ask it in this way. Have you been to Mount Sinai? Figuratively speaking, spiritually speaking, have you been there? Can I share with you the first time I went to Sinai? It was actually in Florida. If there's ever been a flat state, it's Florida. But I went to a Sinai there. It happened back when I was in college. Spring break, baby. You know, spring break in college, woohoo! Uh, I was, you know, celebrating my independence from my parents, and some guys said, hey, we're going down to party in Florida for spring break. You want to join us? Yeah! yeah! I'd heard rumors of the great revelry that occurred down there, and I wanted to be a part of it, you know? And so I said, let's do it. Uh, turns out, I'm not very good at partying. I, I realize that once again. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But my, my roommate was so concerned about me going to Florida for spring break, he came to me, Christian guy, and he said, hey, Jeff, I want to give you a book for you to read while you're in Florida. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not planning on reading a book. And, and he, he said, oh, no, no, you need to. And he gave me this book called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, Chicago pastor, wrote this book 67 years ago, so it's a little old, wrecked me. Uh, Didn't expect to read it, but I was curious about the title, The Pursuit of God. This notion that you can seek God. You know, the Lord said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your hearts. And this notion of pursuing God and actually finding God just was fascinating. I had seen it in this roommate. I got assigned to him. I did not pick him, would not have picked him, but uh, the college blessed me with picking him. And I woke up early in the morning and I would see my roommate at his desk, little lamp, desk lamp on, Bible open. And I'm like, are you studying for like a test or something? And he's like, no, Jeff, I'm, I'm meeting with God. Oh, uh, he, he says, yeah, God's talking to me through this book. Uh-huh. And he said, and I'm talking to God, and he's listening to every word I say. And I just thought he was a Fruit Loop, you know, and I, I would go back to bed. But every morning, every morning, with eagerness, he'd go to this desk pursuing God. And I just thought, that's the silliest thing. God, I believe in him, but he's out there somewhere far away. He can't be known relationally. That's at least what I thought. Well, as I mentioned, I'm not a good partier. I got down to Florida, and I'm like, yeah, and then I go to these parties, and I just, you know, I'm like, 
I am so uncomfortable. You know, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm just not confident in a large, raucous celebration like that. And so I'm like, can we leave now? You know, that was... And then I found out that the party really didn't begin till 10 o'clock, which is after my bedtime. And so <laughs> I eventually just gave up on it altogether. I'd go to bed, they'd party, and then I'd wake up in the morning and I'd go down to the beach, you know, where is everybody, you know, and uh, they had been up till three or four and wouldn't get to the beach after till after lunch. And so I'm down there to see the sunrise all by myself. What do I do? Grab my friend's book, and I thought, well, I'm bored. And so I started to read. And these words mesmerized me. Tozer, in this book, describes the pursuit of God. He says, it's tough. Is it difficult to get to know, to build a friendship with an invisible God? Yeah, it's tough. Is it difficult to relate to one who doesn't speak usually an audible voice? But in an, Yeah, it's really tough, but it can be done. And God is waiting for those who will seek him. And I would read chapter after chapter. Tozer does such a great job of looking at different facets of this relationship, basking in the love of God, hearing the inner voice of God, satisfied by the companionship of God, strengthened by the power of God, guided by the direction of God. I mean, he just goes through, and I was... My heart changed at that Mount Sinai, that spring break down in Florida. Prior to that, I had been all about the land flowing with milk and honey. All I knew is I wanted the best life circumstantially imaginable. And I started to wonder, could it be that the apex of life is not found in circumstances, but in friendship with God Almighty? Could it be that life at its best is found in increasingly experiencing the reality of God. And by the time I finished this book, I closed it on that beach, and I said, God, I think it might be possible. And I want you more than I want anything else on planet Earth. And I had a life purpose shift, a detour, a change of direction. And suddenly I said, you know, God, if you bless me with the land of milk and honey, fantastic. I'll enjoy it. But what I really want is to know you. If you can be known, I want to know you. If a man can be a friend of God, I want to be a friend of God. And I started to burn with a desire to seek him with all of my heart and find him. I wanted to climb Mount Sinai. Do you have that desire? You know, I want to show you something. <clears throat> when I went to the top of Mount Antero in Colorado, I, I found a time capsule just like this. It was a pipe with caps on it, and we're like, that's weird. You know, someone littered and left it up here on top of the mountain. And then we realized, oh, and when we opened it up, we found in it, maybe some of you will know, uh, we, we found in it a, a piece of paper and a pen. And on the piece of paper was the names of all those who had climbed. I didn't steal it. This is a replica of, of what was up there. Okay. <clears throat> the names of those who had climbed to that summit. And I noticed your name was not on the list. 
Who cares? You know, whether your name is on the list of mountain peaks in Colorado doesn't matter. But I would love for your name to be on the list at the peak of Mount Sinai. A.W. Tozer described the people that have climbed Mount Sinai as the fellowship of the burning heart. He acknowledges we're a peculiar group. And he said, there are some who have become so enamored with the notion of knowing God that their heart is on fire for the face of God. You know, the Old Testament says, seek my face. And people, the fellowship of the burning heart, seek his face above all else. They say, I don't care about anything in this life as much as I care about building a tangible, experiential, real, transformational friendship with you, Almighty God. And Tozer says, you can recognize a member of the Fellowship of the Burning Heart. They got a fire in their eyes. As you talk to them, you can sense their devotion to this quest of knowing God. And my prayer is that your name is on that list or that it will be by the end of this series, that you will be a part of the Fellowship of the Burning Heart. And some of you are saying, I can't be, uh, not me. I mean, I'm, I'm a bum, Jeff. I, you, you know, you, you A.W. Tozer, you Moses, ooh, you Jeff Pastor, you know, you guys go climb the spiritual mountain. I'm a bum. You know what? Right? Maybe you should know why Moses was tending sheep in Midian. He was a fugitive running from the law, a murderer. And yet God in his grace invited the least of these up the mountain. And the invitation to go up the mountain, to be a part of the fellowship of the burning heart has never been based on our greatness, but God's grace. And as it is, you're invited. And I pray you'll go with me, that you'll be here every week of this series if you miss one, you'll get it online. But that you will say, Lord, if you pick the mountain to teach us about knowing you, I want to learn what you have to teach. Shall we pray? Let's bow our heads. God, we thank you for Mount Sinai. Thank you, God, for in your grace teaching us by picking a visible, physical thing like a mountain and reminding us that there's something most important God, we've been enticed by the land flowing with milk and honey. We've chased it. We've heroically devoted ourselves to those pursuits. Would you forgive us for insulting the glory of friendship with you? We now turn, as Moses turned towards Sinai, we turn. And God, in prayer, we're asking, be the object of our desire. Be the greatest longing of our hearts. Tomorrow, when we wake up, may increasingly you be the thing we want most of all. Please, God, make us a people on fire for you. God, take the compass, church. When I think of the Israelites gathering at the base of Mount Sinai, lifting their voices in adoration and worship to you, make that us. Make us a community of people who have lost our affection for the things of this world and are increasingly obsessed with this opportunity to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name.